0: Well, good evening, my Wednesday night Bible study family. Has anyone ever asked you why Bible study is so important? Have you ever asked yourself that question? You know, I love the time that we can spend in God's Word together, both the Old and New Testament, uh, because it maintains our connection with Him through His written Word. It reminds us of God's character, His promises, our dependence upon Him, and of our glorious future together. It familiarizes us with and helps us grasp the relationship between our everyday lives and His story. And it keeps our souls energized. It's also a time that we can connect with the Father for each other in prayer. And so I want to ask as we begin that we do just that. Uh, I want to ask that you be in prayer for Sally Ross. Uh, Sally lost her 44-year-old sister, Susan Ray Ross altman of Zanesville, Ohio this past May the 9th, uh, rather unexpectedly. Uh, Be in prayer for Sally Ross and her sister, Judy Kuhn, and her brother, Jerry, uh, as well as Susan's husband, Don, and their two sons, Duke and Drake. Uh, Be in prayer for Bonnie Smith. She's finished her pre-testing, and this coming Monday, May the 18th at 8 a.m., Bonnie's gonna be having heart surgery at our local hospital. And so let's commit Bonnie and Fred Smith in our prayers. Also, Connie Schumann's daughter-in-law, Debbie Schumann, at the Miami Valley Hospital, with her broken left leg and a halo, is going to be having a surgery this coming May the 18th as well. And she's going to stay at Miami Valley for rehab following that surgery and any post-operative swelling. I also want to ask you continue to be in prayer for Rose Nye, uh, for Rose's son, Tim Ullery, with his heart condition and need of a cardiologist and a stress test. And Rose's son-in-law, Rick Presley, whose leukemia is out of remission. He's going to be having a port put in next Tuesday for chemotherapy and needs our prayers. Then if you haven't heard yet, uh, our great wonderful new friends, Joseph and Rebecca Epp and kids, they are in the process of returning to South Dakota to manage the ranch and the farm that Joseph worked at before moving to Springfield. Uh, it is certainly sad to see them go. Uh, we made a quick a connection in the time they were here, but we pray God's blessing on them and their move. Then Robert and Natalie Seaver and kids, they're all as a family in the last month of expecting a newborn daughter to arrive. So any day now, uh, Cordelia and Ben are going to have a, a baby sister uh, to watch over. If you've been paying attention to the news, which I'm sure you have, you know that uh, tattoo and massage parlors are gonna reopen May the 15th, which is good news for Doug Fisher, who I'm sure has been waiting to get a quail tattoo as a hunter on his arm. (laughs) No, just kidding. But it reminds us, as Dr. Fauci stated, we're going in the right direction, but we have to exercise caution uh, to avoid a resurgent. Even in Clark County, we're not at our peak yet. Uh, We uh, are close to 100 coronavirus cases, and so we need to pray for the Lord's wisdom as we see things reopening again that we don't have a resurgence of coronavirus cases. So if you would, let's just bow and go to the Father in prayer now. Heavenly Father, we come before you uh, praying that your kingdom come and your will would be done on this earth in our lives as it is in heaven. That you truly will give us our our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. That you'll lead us into temptation but deliver us from evil because yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Lord Jesus, only you know where our path will lead, but I trust that even if we don't know either the way or the destination, we know that you're with us, that you go before us, that you encircle us, and and we will follow you with joy. Father, we pray for all those that we've mentioned, family, friends, uh, colleagues even, that they might receive healing and wisdom, that they might know the pleasure of your company in this life, and uh, that they might clearly hear the call to discipleship. Uh, Father, for them and for each one of us, I ask that you fuel us with a call to love and justice and right living. Father, inspire us with the experience of following your commands and loving as you have loved us. Let us rejoice and let all those that we pray for sing in the concrete reality of you in our lives. Father, we love you, we love your word. We pray for hearts that bend to your will, that follow you with with great joy, and I pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. Well, tonight we're going to be talking about the fall and its consequences. And so you probably already know if you are with us last week, that means we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, it's one of the most important chapters in the Bible because without it, we can't even begin to understand the darkness that, that blankets the earth. As we remember from our last study in, in Romans, Romans chapter 5 verse 12 said, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in that way, death came to all people because all sinned." That has uh, legitimacy in Genesis 3 and what we're going to be talking about. I heard the story of a man this week who was sitting with a friend who was expected to die of cancer at at any time. And uh, that friend is a loving spouse, but... His body has just been reduced by disease to about 70 pounds. And the realization hits everyone at that point, you know, life isn't fair. Around the country, we continue to hear talk about economic recession and job losses. Uh, From the international news, we hear about terror attacks and threats of things that could flare up while this coronavirus is happening. North Korea congratulates China. China shakes the hand of North Korea uh, we are more fearful and we wonder what in the world uh, is, number one, what, what's going on and what's gone wrong. You could argue good results come from bad experiences, such as uh, the case of a man who eventually became my friend and is a Christian uh, after some bad experiences in his life. But frankly, it's often hard to see a good purpose behind the sheer quantity of natural and moral evil in, in this world. These questions are troubling but should cause less dissonance for those who actually trust and believe in God's word. You know, the scripture's clear that this world is not the world that came from the creator's hand originally because something happened to it. God's creation in chapter 1 verse 31 was very good. He created man and woman in his image, uh, couldn't be better, and gave them dominion over the physical world. Uh, dominion over all creatures uh, who would become subject to them. And then one creature, the serpent, would blindside the woman later named Eve with a trick question. Has God indeed said that you will not eat of every tree of the garden? And Eve, of course, would concede God had prohibited uh, eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We don't know if God directly stated his prohibition to Eve or if Adam passed it along to her. Uh, being a man and realizing how often I hear this, I'm prone to believe that Adam passed it along and probably didn't convey the whole truth along to her. <laughs> but regardless, she distorted God's word and she added a prohibition that they were not even to touch the forbidden tree, and then she subtracted from the penalty "you will die." Uh, in in three three, it's a lot less forceful in Hebrew than God's statement in chapter two, verse seventeen, when He said, "You shall surely die." And so in Genesis 3, man will begin to doubt, distort, and defy God's word and reduce it to an alternative viewpoint. One of the things every time I think about Genesis chapter 3 and the story of creation that I ask myself is, you know, who, who picked Adam to represent us? Uh, and as we see in Genesis 3, all of Adam's descendants are born with that sin nature and Romans 5.12 that we read earlier affirmed that we all sin in Adam. Uh, the doctrinal term that you will read about in here times, it, it calls Adam the representative headship of mankind. But is it fair that we would suffer because of Adam and Eve's sin? And the more I think about it, you know, first, would we have acted any differently than Adam if we had been there? Secondly, you know, God chose Adam as our head. Which means unless God is is malevolent, that choice was made for ultimate good. If we had been there or if we had chosen another representative, would anything have actually turned out differently? And I think the answer is no. So questions of fairness are, are actually speculations, not really substantive objections. Third, consider how representative headship is really for our benefit. Apparently, angels fell without a representative head. And there's no hope of restoration for them. They sin individually. They're beyond recovery. In contrast, we sin representatively as well as individually. And yet our sin can be forgiven and overcome. Because just as we have a representative head in sin, we have a representative head in salvation in Jesus Christ. Apart from Christ, we, like those fallen angels, we would be on our own and we would remain forever lost in our sin. But as 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. And then as I ask that question too, fourthly, in eternity, our final state will be more exalted, more lifted up, more glorified than the original state of the first Adam. We will have more than innocence because we will possess The righteousness of the last Adam. And we will be incapable of sin in heaven. And won't that be a glorious day? You know, as we begin this study, I want to ask you to think of a few things, uh, reflect on these, and I'll mention these again at the end of our study. But I kind of thought about these myself. Number one, to be a disciple is not just to believe in Jesus, I think it's to follow Jesus. In your time with God, I want to ask you to reflect on the ways in which you presently are following Jesus. Do you experience your discipleship, your walk with him as a joy? Is your faith, the burden uh, the burden of your discipleship, is it light? Do you sense there are places that Jesus might want to lead you where you would rather not go? And if so, where are they? And What's holding you back? That's some big questions, aren't they? Well, we're in a sermon series in Genesis, and last week we really read uh, Genesis 1 and 2, and I've been reading Genesis 3 this week, and and I keep seeing one question come up again, uh, not just in Time Magazine and in blog after blog, uh, but I see a lot of online articles, and I want to answer a question uh, that is on the heart of a lot in our nation, and it's really answered from Genesis 3. on doesn't suffering disprove God. Or where is God when all this is going on? And I want you to listen to what writer George Bernard Shaw once said. George Bernard Shaw wrote, How Are Atheists Produced? It's probably nine times out of ten like this. A beloved wife, or a husband, or a child, or a sweetheart is gnawed to death by cancer or strangled by diphtheria, and the looker on, after praying vainly to God to refrain from such cruelty, indignantly repudiates his faith in the divine monster, and becomes not merely indifferent and skeptical, but fiercely hostile to religion. But suffering does not, friends, disprove God, because if there was one, he wouldn't let it happen. Okay? Here's how C.S. Lewis sums up the problem in his book. The Problem of Pain, a great, great little book. He says, if God were good, he would wish to make his creatures happy. And if God were almighty, he would be able to do what he wished. But the creatures are not happy. Therefore, God lacks either goodness or power or both. And that's the problem of pain in its simplest form. But before seeing how the Bible speaks to that problem you know, let's turn the tables and say this, if you don't believe in God, suffering is still a big problem for you. And I don't just mean you still have to live with it. I mean, you've got a big intellectual problem too. So my first focus to answer that question is, uh, it's really the problem for unbelievers. I think, for example, of the times I watch the TV news with friends who, who say they don't believe in God. It's the usual catalog of suffering. You know, a a disaster here, an earthquake there, a murder here, a sex crime there, and each of them will say out loud, I mean, this is just so awful. That's so evil. Now, what's going on there? I think it's a deep, instinctive reaction that suffering is an evil, that it's something that ought not be, that the world should be different. But where does that reaction come from? You see, if you don't believe, or if you believe that there's no God and that this universe is just the product of chance and time, you have no reason to expect it to be any different. You've got no basis for saying things ought to happen or some things ought not to happen, that some things are good and some are evil. Because only if there is a good and personal God behind the universe, do we have any basis for expecting that it would be good or for defining some things as good or other things as evil. So if you're not yet a believer in the God of the Bible, your big intellectual problem is you can't call the terrorist bomb or the earthquake or the murder or the sex crime evil, nor can you explain your reaction to those things. Because your worldview says suffering isn't an evil. There is no such thing. It is what it is. Suffering's just a fact, and why did you expect things to be any different in a universe kicked up by chance and time? And yet, I guess you do call those things evil, and you do have a deep instinctive reaction that the world ought not be like this. But that word ought or ought not, friends, it can only come from the existence of a good and personal designer of a God behind it. So that's the first thing to say. Unbelievers have a huge intellectual problem. And far from suffering disproving God, our instinctive reaction to it points the other way. Suffering actually proves the existence of God. So back to the problem for those of us who do believe in the God of the Bible. My second focus has to be for the problem that believers have. And at this point, I do want you to turn to Genesis chapter 1, and I want you to look down at Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 again, okay? Before we even get to chapter 3, okay? Genesis 1, 1 through 3. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And creation continues. So Genesis 1 tells us that from nothing, God created everything that exists and therefore has complete control over it. And that complete control, where nothing happens without Him willing it or allowing it, is what we call sovereignty. As Christians, we call that God's sovereignty. Now turn over to Genesis one thirty-one. In Genesis one thirty-one, God has created the stage of the earth, and he places on it the leading actor of mankind. Now look at verse 31. God saw all that he had made, and it was, what? Very good. And it was good because God is good. God is good as a creator. The things that he makes are good. 1 Timothy 4.4 4 in the New Testament says, everything God created is good. You know, Jen Johnson with Bethel Music sings the song. And maybe you've heard this on Pandora or iTunes. I love you, Lord, for your mercy never fails me. All my days I've been held in your hands. From the moment that I wake up until I lay my head, oh, I will sing of the goodness of God because all my life you've been faithful and all my life you've been so, so good with every breath that I am able oh, I will sing of the goodness of God I love your voice you've led me through the fire and in darkest night you are close like no other I've known you as father I've known you as friend and I have lived in the goodness of God your goodness is running after it's running after me With my life laid down, I'm surrendered now. I give you everything, all to the goodness of God. Friends, God is good. Jesus himself would bear testimony when he said to the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10, verse 18, Why would you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. And so the young man had to conclude if Jesus really were completely good, if he were unwaveringly good, he must be God in the flesh. So the Bible says God is both good and sovereign. Yet our experience of suffering seems to say foul. That can't be true. And that's the problem for believers. So where do we go? with what the Bible says or what, what experience seems to say? Well, our third focus has got to be, why do we believe in God's goodness and God's sovereignty? The answer is not because you know, we can read them straightforwardly and unambiguously from our experience. For example, when I looked at my newborn daughters lying in a warming incubator, it was overwhelmingly clear to me that God was good and sovereign. That although I, I had been procreator, these little lives, they didn't ultimately come from me. And you know, the more I've seen them grow and seeing live ready for college now, and Emma with one year left in law school, I, I'm just amazed. And it reminds me more and more how the psalmist said, no, nope, they are fearfully and wonderfully made by someone other than me. But what about friends who's had who've had trisomy babies or babies born with Down syndrome or miscarriages or infertility. What do you read from those experiences? The fact is, experience in this fallen world, friends, it's far too ambiguous for us to read. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve in the King James Version, for now we see as through a gra- glass darkly. And Christian faith, it doesn't rest on deductions from experience. Christian faith rests on the fact that God has revealed himself to us. And that's the big question of the week. Why doesn't God show himself to us in all that's going on? And I would say he is. And those who do not see it, do not look for it. I believe God has revealed himself supremely in sending his son Jesus into this world as a man who really lived 2,000 years ago, who really died on a cross to pay for our forgiveness, and who really rose from the dead and really returned to his Father in heaven. John fourteen nine, Jesus answered to Philip, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you for such a long time? Anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. So friends, if Emma or Liv had been disabled and you would have asked me, well, don't you find it harder now to believe in God's goodness and sovereignty? I might well have said, yes, I do find it harder. But faith is anchored in the unchanging facts of the death and resurrection and life of Jesus. And I trust the Lord would have enabled me to say, yes, it is harder, but I do still believe because he's good, because he gave his son to die for the forgiveness of my sins on the cross. And I do still believe he's sovereign because Jesus rose from the dead and is ruling in control of everything. One day, everything will be made right. And friends, if we're believers, we need to avoid misreading our experiences. And we need to read from the Lord's death and resurrection, His unchanging goodness and sovereignty. Whatever's going on in our lives or world right now has to be seen through the lens of His love. And we may not be able to understand how He's being good to us in the things He's allowing, but we need to keep trusting that He's being good to us nonetheless. And so my, my, my fourth focus has got to be, okay, so why then is there suffering in the world? I believe the foundational answer to that question is in Genesis chapter 3. Now again, to understand Genesis 3, you've got to know chapter 1. You've got to look at chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Now the tree of the knowledge of good and evil stands for who has the right to define what is good and evil, who has the wisdom to draw the moral line. And God is saying to man, you don't. You're free, but you're not free to draw the line between good and evil for yourself you're to live under my wisdom and my authority that's how we were created that's how we're meant to live at the end of verse 17 god says if you won't live like that if you rebel against me at the end of verse 17 you will surely die and that's what happens to adam and eve and just as a as a president or a prime minister declares war on another country can drag his whole country into the war Adam and Eve declared war on God. They rebelled against God and they dragged us all in to the rebellion. So you and I were not born like Adam and Eve were created, namely good and flawless. We were were born like Adam and Eve became, namely rebellious and fallen. And as you look at chapter 3, now you'll start to see some of the, the ripples caused in those rebellious flaws. Verse 1 in chapter 3 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. The Bible will later say the serpent represents Satan, the devil. And all you've got to do is turn to Revelation chapter 12 verse 9 to see that. He's a spiritual being who rebelled against God and subsequently enticed mankind to do the same. The Bible goes on to say, he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? In other words, how restrictive of God. Wouldn't you rather be totally free? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, or excuse me, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. You can rebel without any bad consequences, any lasting ill, because God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Don't you want to be like God, in other words? Don't you want to decide for yourself how to live? When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom... uh, gaining for herself the right to define good and evil uh, she took some and ate it and she gave also some to her husband who was with her and he ate it so they became rebels against god or to use the precise biblical word they became sinners and that sin has been transmitted down through our race ever since and how serious you understand that rebellion to be will determine your reaction really to the rest of this chapter and the rest of the Bible. Because the rest of Genesis 3 says that suffering, it becomes the consequence of sin, which God both allows and imposes. And he does that partly as a judgment on the utter wrongness of refusing to treat him as God. And he does it also partly as mercy because it's to be a wake-up call. Suffering is an alert call to turn people back to Him. And if you see rebellion against God as a small thing, that it's really just no big deal, you're going to be offended by the rest of this chapter, offended by the Bible, and offended by Christianity. But just think what rebellion against God and what it really is and what we're doing whenever we sin. We are literally saying to God, God, I know you are or I believe you might be, but I want you to know I'm the center of the universe and you're not. It means saying to God, I'll take the life that you've given me, but now keep out of it. And just think where that rebellion, which lies in the heart of each one of us, came most clearly to the surface in human history. It came to the surface most evidently when we nailed Jesus to the cross the Son of God, to say as strongly as we could, we don't want you to be God over us. If we have even an inkling of how offensive our rebellion looks to God, we won't be offended by the rest of this chapter, but nor will we find it easy to hear. You remember God said back in Genesis 2:17, if you rebel, you will surely die. And in the Bible, death doesn't mean the end of existence. In the Bible, death means a terrible change of existence, a sub-existence that's just the shadow of the one we are created to have in relationship with God. So Adam and Eve die at chapter 3, verse 7. Now read on, you'll see the living death that they plunged us all into. In this living death, verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened. They realized they were naked, and so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So in comes the suffering of shame and fear. Shame because we're now living the way we want, not the way God wants. And deep down, we know that's wrong. We know what we've lost. And fear because we know others living the way they want may hurt us, or people also may use us rather than love and protect us. So there's a lot to cover up out of shame and fear, and we retreat from relationship. The Bible goes on to say, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I always wonder what that sounds like. Is it a rustling sound? Is it a clear sound? You know, is God whistling as he goes through the garden a song of joy? Uh, Is there just a a hum of his presence and aura as, as God comes into the garden? But when they hear him walking in the cool of the day, the Bible says they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. So in again comes the suffering of guilt. A bad conscience before God and fear of God. Which is why apart from faith in Christ, people fear death. Our ultimate appointment with God. Verse 11, And God said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. As someone put it, the man blamed God, and then he blamed the woman. The woman blamed the serpent, and the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. (laughs) After getting a confession from them, God passes sentence quickly. The most encouraging thing is he who sentences first. Look at verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That's a promise, friends, that Satan and the rebellion he's led with all its resulting suffering will ultimately be overthrown how look at the end of verse 15 one of the woman's offspring a man yet to be born will crush satan and at the same time he himself will be struck and the new testament echoes genesis three fifteen in verses about Jesus' death on the cross and his coming again all you have to do is turn to john 12 verse 30 to 33 or First John 3.8 or Romans 16.20 that we sing in camp in a song, actually. That the God of peace will soon crush Satan. Yes, God will crush him underneath his feet. So be excellent in what is good. And I, because in paying for the cross for our forgiveness, so that we could come back into the relationship with God, the Lord Jesus did defeat Satan. Just like D-Day of World War II defeated Hitler. But Hitler really wasn't overthrown until V-Day, when D-Day's consequences finally work themselves out in victory. And likewise, Satan will not be completely overthrown and done away with until the risen Lord Jesus finally returns to take us home. The defeat is done, it's certain, and it's near completion. Meanwhile, those of us who have been forgiven back onto his side remain in a world at war with God. So we still suffer God's blanket judgments on the human race. Like sickness and death, believers are not immune to those pains. And we still suffer being sinned against, and we still suffer the frustration of our own ongoing sinfulness, but the good news, embedded as early in the Bible as Genesis 3:15, often called the proto or the first evangelism, the first good news, is that for those trusting in Christ, evil will be brought to an end. It'll be overthrown. As we say, when Jesus comes again to judge the living and the dead, and at the other end of the Bible, the last book of the Bible, Revelation says that it will be a sin-free new creation that believers will be raised into. Oh, how I love Revelation 21, 4. That God at that point in time will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And the Bible's ultimate answer to the question of evil and suffering is not so much as an explanation of how it began, but the promise that it will be brought to an end. In the sense that there will be a new creation perfectly free of evil. Because evil will be confined to hell. So that means justice will finally be done on everyone. Even those who escape justice in this life. That's something the atheist can't say. And there will finally be a place totally free of evil. That's something the humanist can't say because they're precious little evidence that the human race is evolving to become free of evil. And it's something that Eastern religions can't even say because they mostly say good and evil have always been there. So presumably they always have to be. The Bible is unique in saying evil and suffering have an expiration date evil and suffering had a historical beginning and they will be brought to an end when Jesus returns to wrap up his story history and if we're forgiven if we're on the right side of him friends that is a precious truth to put our hope into now the sentence has been spoken against the serpent let's look at the sentence spoken on mankind verse 16 to the woman he said I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you'll give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Literally, you, you're, you will desire to dominate your husband, but he will dominate you. So suffering comes into motherhood. It comes into the marriage relationship in the battle of the sexes. Verse 17, and to Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you'll eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. So suffering comes in the form of a struggle to survive in a now unruly and threatening natural environment. Verse 19, by the sweat of your brow, you'll eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. So suffering comes, friends, in the ultimate form of God imposing mortality on us. Suffering is the consequence of sin, which God both allows and imposes. But that doesn't mean that each specific bit of suffering is a judgment on a specific sin. And there are people that think like that, don't they? Something bad happens and they ask, why is God punishing me? What is it he's punishing me for? And sometimes you can trace back your suffering to a specific sin. You could trace back uh, at times, not always, because we have a lot of folks that have non-alcoholic cirrhosis to the liver, but many times you can trace back liver failure to alcohol abuse. Many times you could trace heart disease back to overeating and indulging, but we can't make specific connections like that for all suffering, and we shouldn't try. What we can do is say that there would be no suffering if there had been no sin. So, why does God allow and impose suffering? Well, friends, on the one hand, it's a judgment. It shows us the utter wrongness of rebelling against God. That's why viruses exist. And to bring it home to us above all through our mortality, He is the living God and we are not. That it's the height of folly to think that we can enjoy life without any problem of pain while rejecting the source of that life. But on the other hand, suffering is a mercy. It's designed to beg in us the question, why? Why are there natural disasters? Why do some people have to get sick and die? Why do we get hurt and and others hurt by us? Why do people have to get sick? And God's aim is to bring us out into that deep, instinctive reaction that things ought not be this way. And to beg the underlying question, where did all of this go wrong? And the answer he wants us to come to is, what's gone wrong? We have, we have, and if suffering is a part of what gets us to that point where we see our need to be put right with God, then friends, it is a mercy. C.S. Lewis called his book, the problem of pain, but actually in a fallen world, the absence of pain would be an even bigger problem. Talked about a family friend that had lost all sensation in her right arm. And she would accidentally put her hand on a hot electric ring of the stove. And the first thing she'd know about it would be the smell of burning flesh. You see, pain is good in that sense because it warns us something's wrong. So you can take your hand back and take action. And through suffering, God is warning the human race. The most fundamental thing, our relationship with him is wrong. And that if we haven't already done so, we need to react. We need to take action to receive his forgiveness, to accept him as our creator and the rightful ruler of our lives as he should have been all along. C.S. Lewis puts it like this, and I quote, Error and sin both have this properly. The deeper they are, the less their victims suspect their existence. They're a masked evil. Pain, on the other hand, is evil unmasked that it's impossible to ignore we cannot rest, or excuse me we can rest contentedly in our sins and our stupidities even in our pleasures but pain insists on being attended to god whispers to us in our pleasures speaks to us in our conscience but he shouts in our pain it is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world so why is there suffering doesn't it disprove god absolutely not the Bible's answer to that is it actually proves God exists. You can always push it back and say, you know, if God knew he'd rebel, which he did, if he knew about all this suffering that would result from that, which he did, then why did he go ahead and create in the first place? But then we're beginning to sound like Adam and Eve, particularly Eve blaming the serpent, and both of them implicating blaming God for the whole situation and the question each of us really has to answer is this is god to blame for the way the world is or am i friends i can't answer that question for you but which way you do answer it will determine on which side of god you will ultimately stand. you know that 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 leads us to kind of have another specific question to tackle about suffering one which certainly occurs to believers and one which is often thrown at believers by others. But I'm conscious that for many believers suffering, it, it doesn't raise the question, is God really there? It, it does raise up the question, what is he up to? Why is he allowing me or others to go through this? And there's other things that believers need to hear. You know, All of which would be separate studies all in themselves. It would be another study to look at how God uses suffering to refine our faith in him. And develop us to be more like Christ in our character. And if that's a question you want to answer, look at 1 Peter 1 verses 6 and 7. Look in the first chapter of James. Look at Romans 5 verses 3 and 4 and Romans 8 verse 28 and 30. It would be a whole other study to look at the book of Job even. And learn the lesson that we won't always understand why God has allowed something either at the time or even in retrospect in history. And that sometimes the answer is simply to keep trusting in the darkness, what we knew would be true in the light. And it would be another study to ponder the precious truth that even when we're in the thick of suffering of any sort, the Lord Jesus, he can sympathize with us from his own experience. Because whatever you're going through, friends, he's been there. He's experienced the full range of human suffering and pain, even death. Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 18. And Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. and Hebrews 5, verses 7 through 10. We don't have a high priest that's unable to sympathize with us. But we have one who in every way as we are was tempted but was without sin. And he more genuinely than any other person... Jesus himself can say to us, I know how you feel. Tonight's passage had vital things to say about how suffering entered God's good creation. Friends, we need these other parts of the Bible and more to help us not just understand to the extent that we're able to, the why of suffering, but to continue to trust the Lord and find comfort in him in the midst of that suffering. Let me wrap this up with a few verses I want to share with you. This is Psalm 62, verses 5 through 8. Psalm 62, verses 5 through 8. Find rest, O my soul, in God alone. My hope comes from Him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He's my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in him at all times, O oh people, pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. Romans 15:13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Again that was Romans 15:13. and then the last one, second Corinthians 1 verses three through 5. 2 Corinthians 1, 3-5. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all compassion, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. Friends, I want you to go back now to those three questions I ask you to reflect on. I made the comment, number one, that to be a disciple, it's not just to believe in Jesus. It's to follow him. So in this time of reflection, as we've read Genesis chapter three, reflect on the ways that you are presently following Jesus, that you're presently obeying God. Number two. Do you experience your discipleship as a joy? Is the burden of your discipleship light? Friends, or number three, do you sense there are places Jesus might want to lead you where you would rather not go? If so, what are they and what's holding you back? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, you truly deserve all praise and honor. You're the creator. Father, everything that you are is good and everything you make is good. And it's because of our sin that this world is as bad as it is. It's because of our sin that the evil of this world just bubbled to the surface on the cross at Calvary. We did our worst to Jesus to say we don't want you to be God of our lives when the reality of our heart today is we do god we need you to be our master and commander we need you to be our savior and lord we need you to govern our lives with all compassion and comfort with your refuge and strength with your forgiveness and your redemption god it is only by your joy and peace that we will trust in you it's only by your hope that the power of your Holy Spirit can flow into and out of our lives. So in this walk with you, Father, give us your light burden. Father, for the things that are just heavy and they're heavy or they cause us personal suffering because there's things that we're doing that you would rather us drop. There are places we're going to, relationships we're involved in, activities, hobbies, behaviors, That, Father, we know in our heart of hearts there's just extra burden in this life and weight that remind us of the rebellion. Father, we don't want to rebel against you. We want to bow before you and humbly come before you and feel you reach out your hand and touch us with a touch of mercy and grace and restore us in a good relationship with you. Lord, I pray that for myself. I pray that for everyone listening to this podcast now and I do it all in the beautiful and blessed name of Jesus. Amen. God bless your night. God bless the rest of your week. And I hope we'll be sharing together on the Lord's day.